and welcome to episode five of Teal Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And this week we will be discussing urban versus rural settings and Pride and Prejudice versus Sense and Sensibility. But I guess, first of all, we should explain ourselves um, <laughs> because it's been a while. Rachel, f- fill them in. <laughs> well, um, I moved house and unfortunately my internet provider, who shall remain nameless, um, <laughs> took over six weeks to connect me to the internet, which is why I have been missing in action. But um, we are now back and my internet hopefully won't go again. So we should be back into regular rhythm and regular podcasts yeah. and all that sort of thing. We, um, <laughs> I think you should name and shame them, frankly. Yeah, plus net, plus net, people, don't go with them. <laughs> yeah. If I had a Twitter account, I would be all over that, but I don't. Let's start a hashtag. I, I, think think it's, it's, I think it's time. You should tweet this for me. <laughs> well, I run about 14 different Twitter accounts, it seems, so I'll start a concerted effort. Thanks, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> it will come out in favour of cyberbullying. That's, our, <laughs> that's today's message. Um, before we do get onto our discussion, uh, and we will have to like, argue or catch up and stuff, there are a couple of things that I wanted to um, address, sort of housekeeping things, because people got in touch in those cavernous weeks when we were not recording. <laughs> um, one of which was lovely Ruthie Ella um, wanted to know, because we've yet to discuss it, which we would choose out of tea or books. Oh. Um, I don't even know if I can. That's an awful decision. <laughs> It was like choosing between one of your children. It is. Um, <laughs> and that's why I chose it, well, I, well, I suggested it as a title for the podcast, because it is representative of horrendous decisions you have to make. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I could live without tea, but then I could... <gasps> Does books count as Kindle? Oh. Ooh. Can we have electronic? I feel like that's cheating in this case. I don't, know. I don't know. I don't know if it is. I, d- I feel like that's not, because it's not a physical book, is it? Ruthie Ellis says no. We're allowed that. <laughs> so, then I choose tea. Because I was thinking about this, and my choice was, if it has, if it's only for one day, I'm going to keep tea, but if it's the rest of my life, I'll keep books. Because I feel like after a few weeks of that tea, it might be bearable. Yeah, I went through a stage a couple of years ago where I decided to go vegan for a while, um, for no particular reason. And um, I tried tea with that sort of almond milk stuff, and it was disgusting, so I just stopped <laughs> tea. And then after a while, I didn't miss it. But then as soon as I decided that being vegan wasn't working for me, um, because I like cheese and <laughs> too much, um, I started drinking it again, and then I got addicted. So I can live without it, so you're right, actually. Books, I mean, I would take books, but if a Kindle is, is open... For te- for the taking, then I I would do tea. You <laughs> can get everything on Kindle. I just love it. Well, that's a discussion for another day, and but, and, and it will be a heated one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope that answers your question, with Yella. Um, while well, it's while well, mine was sort of cheating, but um, <laughs> but between <laughs> us, we we've proven that we love tea and books pretty pretty hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing I want to address was a few people got, have got in touch with me over the, over the time, weeks we've done saying that we, it doesn't make sense to compare different authors or different books. And it's very, I mean, they said it in very nice ways, but I guess I want to say like we, we realise that we don't have to choose and that comparing things against each other is just as, you know, it's silly, but it's hopefully also fun. <laughs> so yeah. we, we fully accept that you can't, like, I don't know, Ines and Ina Brighton are on different scales and, and don't quite work as comparisons, but... It's a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We just wanted to find a theme. Yes, we just wanted something to make us different, so I wasn't just openly copying the other podcasts I listened to. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, and one more shout-out I want to give, actually. Katie, in my office, 
you've been badgering me every day for the last month to do this episode. <laughs> so I hope you're happy. <laughs> and I hope you're having a nice jog as you listen to this. <laughs> uh, so, Rachel, how are you? I'm okay, yeah. I'm loving living in London, loving my new job. Um, yeah, everything's great. Thanks, Simon. How about you? Oh, well, yeah, I'm I'm good. I have well, an exciting discovery over the oh. weekend. Yeah. I, well, I, was, I told someone, um, I didn't know very well, I found out that I'm an identical twin. I then had to backtrack and say, I did already know I was a twin, <laughs> so it wasn't, <laughs> it's not quite the momentous discovery it could have been. But yes, um, after 30, nearly 30 years of th- thinking that I was a non-identical twin, it turned out to be an identical twin. We had a DNA test done. Which is amazing. So exciting. And kind of like an episode of your favourite Safe Neighbours. <laughs> it is a bit like that. Yeah. Um, if only I were more Australian and better looking, it would be exactly <laughs> like that. Um, and have you seen anyone anyone nice in London recently, Rachel? <laughs> um, I did very much enjoy meeting up with my good friend Simon on Saturday. We had a <laughs> lovely time at the London Review of Books cafe which highly recommended for people in mm. london and also just around the corner from a very good oxfam bookshop which we also which, did well i bought plenty of books yes Rachel you did i was very good restrained herself yes we went for brunch but it was we just ate cake basically so. <laughs> <laughs> uh yes it was great when we've not seen each other for two or three years or more is it that's, that's ridiculous it's ridiculous but now now you're in London, easier to get to. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'm at the back of beyond, so. <laughs> and what are you reading? Are you still on with that book with lots of tables in it you were reading when I saw you? Yeah. No, I've given up on that for now. <laughs> um, that was a non-fiction book, by the way, people. Um, I couldn't cope. Too much information. <laughs> um, I'm currently reading, I decided to pick up Armadale by Wilkie Collins. Oh. I thought a bit of sensation fiction, now the uh, nights are drawing in. Makes sense, Yeah. yeah. And I'm, it's ridiculously over the top and I'm loving it. <laughs> How well, about you? Um, I'm, um, I've just started Shirley Jackson's Let Me Tell You, which is, um, ah. they've just, they've collected lots of, it's basically, I would describe it to people as like a B-sides album, but it's <laughs> <laughs> uncollected stories and essays and, um, all that sort of thing. And, um, I'm sort of reading it more or less scattergun because I wasn't in the mood for short stories particularly, but I wanted to read some essays. So I started to do essays and now I'm going back to short stories um, and I'm going to skim in and out between them. But it's a, as, a, as a huge Sarah Jackson fan, it's just pretty exciting to have more to read by her. <laughs> is that a new release? It is. It's uh, from Penguin and it's um, I think it's out now. It's, it's either out now or out short. My, my, mine is a review copy, I will confess. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I mean, it sounds, it's a bit of a coincidence, actually, because I read the lottery to one of my classes today. Oh, how yeah. do they take that? They were, Well, bearing in mind that English is their second language, so um, as it's a French school I'm working in, um, they well, there was a slight amount of confusion, but then when I explained what had actually happened, they were they were all up in arms about it. Like, but why? Why did this happen? I was like, well, that's a very interesting question. Let's talk <laughs> so, yeah. America. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, mm, this is what people do in America. No, they don't. I was like, and then they're like, this is a true story. I was like, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> You're straight on to topic number one, you know, which um, is rural versus urban settings. And the, for fiction, obviously, I think if it was in place in terms of place to live, we already know there would be we, no prizes for guessing. Yes. <laughs> that yeah. city slicker Rachel versus country <laughs> <Morgan> Simon. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me, um, do you have a a, a favourite when it comes to settings of books? Do you have an example? Um, 
Do you know, I was thinking about this this morning. And I actually, I really love books set in London, obviously. <laughs> um, but I also really enjoy books set in the countryside. And I actually think I prefer books set in the countryside because um, I really enjoy reading about the natural environment and the seasons and all that sort of stuff. And you don't tend to get that depiction of the natural world in, obviously, a, a book set in London. Now, I will say that my two exceptions for this are um, not in general not a particularly good book, but the descriptions of London itself are very good, which is Westwood by Stella Gibbons. Oh, yes. Yeah, one of the newer re-releases. It's set in Hampstead and Highgate, which I used to live there, and I love it, love it, love it. Um, and the descriptions of Hampstead Heath and the views over London and the sort of autumnal feeling in September, October were absolutely beautiful, beautifully written and really evocative. Um, and I also love Virginia Woolf's depictions of London, particularly in Night and Day. Ah. Yeah. That is the only Virginia Woolf novel that I've not read. Well, do you know, it's, I think you would enjoy it. It's a bit of a, it's a bit hard going. But um, it's not my favourite, certainly. But the descriptions of London and walking along the embankment and everything are absolutely brilliant, like really powerful and so recognisable even today. I just love that, you know, when she's got, well, you don't because you haven't read it. But, um, <laughs> when she describes the, sort of the soft glow of, of the lights that sort of melt into the fog and it's just beautiful. Um, and there's a really good bit set in the zoo as well. You should read it. Yeah, I, I definitely will at some point. I think... Um... The reason I've not read it for such a long time is because I can't quite face the idea of having read all of her novels. Yeah. <laughs> I want to store one. <laughs> I think I've still got one as well. well. I haven't read the years. Oh, okay. So I think we've probably both left ones that are not amongst her most yeah. well-known. <laughs> um, when you said um, Virginia Woolf in London, I, I was sure it was going to be Mrs. Dalloway. Yeah, well, so, um... you, I think, I mean, I do love the descriptions of London in Mrs. Dalloway, but there was just something about night and day that really captured me hmm. that's fun yeah what uh, about you then what are your favorites well i i instinctively thought i prefer rural settings mm -hmm. um because i assumed i would and then i remembered that um how bad i am with this with descriptions of setting and um and how, <laughs> <laughs> how i tend to gloss over them or i don't really understand what's going on um i just don't have that i love i love looking at think visual things i love art and I love views and that sort of thing but I'm terrible at descriptions of visual things um so things like that that famous opening chapter to the return of the native uh, by Hardy which is supposedly supposed to be one of the um most evocative descriptions of of the countryside and all of fiction oh, really? oh, oh gosh I hated it it was <laughs> so so boring um but I still think I come down to rural um, settings because not so much for the description of the setting but because of the environments that it tends to allow um, the novel to feature because in a village everyone knows each other mm. um, and maybe you get more um, just families interacting or people who will meet each other in a way that would be a quite a big coincidence if they met each other in a city but in a village you'd, it's just what you'd expect. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Campus. Yeah, it's a smaller campus, isn't it? So you've got, like Emma, for example, um, in Jane Austen, hers is the only one set in the village. Mm. And that sort of sense of interaction and community. Yeah, actually thinking about that, that is does tend to be missing from novels set in cities. Um, 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Actually, I hadn't thought about it like that before. Yeah, and I was I was thinking actually I was, when when we first when I first thought about this topic, not that I came up with it, I will tell you who came up with it in a minute because <laughs> we should mm. also talk about that. Um, I was reading Fernie by James Long, which um, <laughs> it's a it's a reincarnation romance, which doesn't sound like something I would enjoy, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but but it is much better than that makes it seem. Um, that's set in a small village in Somerset called Penselwood that I didn't actually realise was a real village, but turns out it's about half an hour away from where my parents live. Um, yeah. And even though I couldn't tell you what any of the descriptions of the setting were, they must have just been sort of seeping into my mind because I really enjoyed just reading about little village life. And I, I normally don't remember where books I'm reading are set, so it was quite um, a miracle that I remembered with that one. But just the fact that it was in a small village, um, I don't know, it brought me into the world more than if it was if it was set in a city, I'd have immediately felt a bit cold about it, maybe. But I suppose it's different if it's a city. If, there aren't any cities I know particularly well, apart from Oxford. Um, and I guess if you can identify areas and or even streets or anything, then, then it's probably easier to get immersed in it. Yeah. But I, I've just been reading um, The Midnight Bell by Patrick Hamilton, which is the first one of the trilogy that was later called 20,000 Streets Under the Sky. Mm. A, few, a few of us on Twitter were doing a little read-along of that. <laughs> um, and that's set in London. And I can't remember where in London. Um because I didn't know the area and didn't really know what was going on in terms of setting, I just sort of glossed over and ignored it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm sure that he very accurately depicts certain sections of London and maybe the, the people I was reading it on Twitter with would be able to tell me. The problem there was because there were so many of us reading it that once we put all our names in the tweets, there were only about 10 characters left to say what we were thinking. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds interesting. I should look into that. I'm just trying to think of my favourite sort of countryside set ones. Have you read? I'm, I'm sure you've read this, Corduroy, Adrian Bell. I haven't actually. I've got. I've had it for ages and I've not read it. Oh, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So beautiful description of. I think it's set. I want to say it's set in Sussex, and um, it's the description of the farming life. I mean, I love all that stuff because. Um, like I have a secret dream like my favourite TV programme is Country File I will admit to this <laughs> I love the idea of being a farmer it just, I'm just, I love it absolutely love it I would be rubbish at it I can see you in wellies yeah, <laughs> and your hunter coat the field. Uh, completely not me at all but um, I would I just love the idea of it you know and the and the sort of the, the smells and the experiences <laughs> and he goes to the farmers he goes to the market where they sell the cows and it's just it's just so lovely it's just a uh, such a brilliant depiction of what is, I suppose, now really a very lost way of life um, and the whole community aspect of it, of everybody knowing each other, of the farms passing down from generation to generation. I'm thinking of loads now. They're all coming into my <laughs> um, South Riding, mm. Holtby, absolutely brilliant, set in the countryside. And again, that sense of community is so important. Um, one Fine Day, amazing depiction. Oh, perfect. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, and that, that walk up the hill that she takes oh, in yeah, it, it's so lovely. Makes, made me cry, that book really made me cry. I was like, oh. this is so beautiful, I don't know what to do with myself. Um, I'm trying to think of something else. That's, oh, I really enjoyed, I read this last summer, I think, A Month in the Country. Oh, yeah, yeah lovely book, yeah. Yeah, really lovely. And Lady Shackley's Lover, another brilliant one set in the countryside, which is, you know, everyone thinks about the sex side of it, but actually it's just <laughs> as much about the... Um, erosion of the countryside. Yeah, think about England's green and pleasant lands when you're reading yeah. that book, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, please do. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's, there's loads. And I think you're right in saying that 
countryside novels do allow for more of an involvement in in the community and in people's lives and I think from a certainly from a perspective of if you're looking at a novel to experience the British way of life if you're reading British novels for that purpose I do think they have more of a sense of what it means to be British and in a certainly in a stereotypical light anyway than a novel would be set in a city perhaps. And I think a greater sense of history, perhaps, or yeah. at least maybe more atavistic. But, uh, yeah, the... ancestry and, mm. yeah, absolutely. Because the city's often about what is new and, I mean, yeah. obviously there's lots of beautiful old buildings and cities as well, but I think yeah. it feels less sort of linked to the past, perhaps. Yeah, and I find city city set novels tend to have themes surrounding things like modernity, change, isolation, all that sort of, sort of stuff. Um, whereas novels set in the countryside tend to be more about community, about uh, looking back to the past, nostalgia, perhaps, which you know obviously appeals to us both. Yes, we're not we're not against nostalgia. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think. I'm, I'm, I, did you expect me to say I like novels? I cities? completely thought you'd pick cities. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay. So I will. There's a couple more examples I wanted to mention. Oh um, yeah, please do. One is a rural one, Hostages to Fortune by Mrs. Oh. Cambridge. Yeah. So lovely. I love that book. Um, and that's set in Oxfordshire countryside, which doesn't don't come across that often. Um, so that's nice. Um, and I feel like I should put one forward for the urban world. <laughs> one of my favourite books, The L-shaped Room. Oh, I haven't um, read that. Oh, Rachel, you'd mm-hmm. love... Well, I hope you'd love it. Um, by Lynn Banks. I think it's set in Fulham. I'm going to say Fulham. It's set somewhere, like, <laughs> um, in the 1960s when that was sort of a down-market area which, a, you know, a, a pregnant girl who's been thrown out of home could afford to go and live in. Um, and I think probably now is no, no longer the case. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but if we take ourselves back to the 60s, grotty flat, and she lives in an L-shaped room um, at the top floor, and the various other people live in the flat. In fact, in some ways, it's like a little, a tiny microcosm of a village um, within that building. You've, oh, it's just the most wonderful book. It's got two sequels that I didn't like as much. I still like them a lot, but I really missed that flat when she moved out of it. <laughs> um, but that, when I was trying to think of urban books that I that I really loved, that was the only one that came to mind. I'm sure there are others out there. But you liked the community aspect of it. Yeah. There certainly isn't, like, any um, love of it because of sweeping views of London or any, <laughs> like, a state of the nation in the capital sort of thing. But it's basically, yes, a village community put in a apartment building. <laughs> <laughs> that happens to be in London. It that happens to be in London. Um, <laughs> a London that no longer exists. Certainly that part of it. Um Thinking back to like the you know twenties, thirties, forties, and all these authors that we love, was was there more of a writing in the countryside then? Do you think, I did, or is it just those are the ones that appeal to to us now and, and to reprint publishers now? Um, I don't know. No, I think I, don't, I can't. I can't think that there is sort of a split between them. I think that's probably about the same. But I think perhaps um, for kind of books that have stayed in the public consciousness um perhaps the ones set in the countryside are more popular because they depicted more vanished world and people enjoy reading about those don't they country house novels and the like yeah true i'm also realizing that i've more or less in my head made urban mean london what but right now the only novels I can think of that are set in cities other than London within the UK um, are 
the Elizabeth Gaskell's It's Grim Up North novels. <laughs> Love a good Manchester factory. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, actually, of other novels set in cities, there must be plenty set in Edinburgh and yeah. Glasgow. Well, the only um, one I've read in Edinburgh that I can think of is one by Kate Atkinson. Brady. Who, sorry? The Prime of Miss Jean Brady. Oh, Prime of Miss Jean Brady. Is that in Edinburgh? I That's can't in remember. Edinburgh, yeah. Ah, I guess, again, that feels more like a, a community within a city. Yeah, and you know what else? I'm just thinking of something. Barbara Pym's novels are all set in London. Well, that's something I meant to bring up, actually. When I first read Barbara Pym, I read Excellent Women. I was expecting it to be sort of Angela Thurkill-esque countryside. Yeah. I was outraged that it was set in London. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> but, feel like it, though, does it? Yeah. And some of them aren't. I, um, her first one, Sometime Gazelle. Was that her first one? Anyway, Sometime Gazelle and is, is set in a village, and that was um, more to my taste. <laughs> yeah. And I think, what else... Jane and Prudence is definitely in the countryside. I remember reading that, but um, when she feels, yeah, I think even when she sets things in London, it's, like a, it's a village. Yeah. It's, she's yeah. in the suburbs most of the time, anyway. But yeah, I just thought I'd throw that in there. Spanner in the works. Yeah, yeah. Da, da, da. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, when I brought this up, we had this debate at my book group, um, and <laughs> basically, they, they because I know Michael has the master about the countryside, they seem to think I'd like every novel set in the countryside and saying, but then why don't you love Hardy, et cetera, et cetera. And, I mean, and, and why do you love Dickens? Because obviously lots of his are set in cities. Yeah. Um, I was like, obviously it's not a hard and fast rule, but <laughs> but if the same story yeah. could be set in one or the other, um, I'd prefer think, it to be in a village. Um, actually, I'm just thinking out loud here. Lots of Victorian novels that are set in cities are really quite interesting um, because they are exploring the idea of the metropolis and the, you know, the sin beneath the surface of poverty and all the rest of it. So I do, I do quite enjoy reading those. Like I don't love Charles Dickens in general, which is probably sacrilege to say this, but um, I do love his depictions of London and the seedy underbelly of, of life in, in a world that is rapidly sort of changing. And it is sort of metaphorical, I suppose, for change and people's fear of change and all of that fear beneath the surface of society. Um, so you have got that, and sens- lots of sensation novels are set in cities as well. Um, and I don't think we have that kind of... Now, I can't just trying to think, do people use cities to talk about those issues now? I'm not sure they do. I think there's lots of sort of modern novels set in cities that talk about how isolated everyone is and how no one communicates with each other anymore. Um, I can't think of any modern sort of countryside novels either. My mind always goes complete blank when I have to think of modern novels at no, all. I, so. <laughs> I mean, the latest, so most modern book I've read that's been that's been set in the countryside have all been like historical novels, mm. which is interesting. Why aren't people writing about life in the countryside now? <laughs> Cue a list of 10,000 novels from our yeah. listeners. <laughs> doing exactly that. I do think it's ironic that in this discussion we have just listened to an aeroplane go <laughs> behind you. <laughs> so you can tell which of us is living in the city. <laughs> Uh, although of course Oxford is also a city, but um, yes, perhaps not the most urban of cities. <laughs> no, but a city nonetheless, Simon. But a city nonetheless. We have our cathedral and everything. <laughs> um, and yes, so I said I'd say who came with this. This was lovely Darlene's um, suggestion for topic. Can we take a moment to say how much we love Darlene? We just love Darlene. Hi, Darlene. Hi. Thanks so, for listening and being supportive. Yeah, you're the best. Oh, and for those who don't know Darlene, sort your lives out and go to cozybooks.blogspot.com. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, cozy spelled C-O-S-Y, as is right and proper. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. 
Um, we both had the uh, joy of seeing Darlene earlier this year separately. But yeah, um, yes, but we love Darlene. She's great. We love <laughs> So when it comes to the Teelberg's decision about rural versus urban, it sounds like we're both going rural. Yeah, which is unusual for us, isn't it? But there we are. We're in agreement. Will we be in agreement for Pride and Prejudice versus Sense Sensibility? I don't know if we will be, actually. <laughs> um, I don't even know if I'm in agreement with myself. I've not, <laughs> not made up my mind yet. <laughs> oh, I've definitely made my mind up. And then you kick us off. Should I go first? Yeah, you um, might be able to sway me. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best. Well, um, I much prefer Pride and Prejudice. And I'll tell you why, Simon. Please, please do. Uh, it's not because I have a massive crush on Darcy. I mean, not that I, I mean, I do, but like, <laughs> it's not the only reason. Um, it's because I just find sense and sensibility um, quite unbelievable and silly in places. I find Marianne incredibly annoying. <laughs> like she just takes to her bed for the entirety of the book. Um, because, you know, her heart's been broken. It's like, just get up and get on with it, girl. Ridiculous. <laughs> and um, I also don't like, I don't think that Eleanor should be married to Edward because he doesn't deserve her. She's amazing. And she marries someone who's just a complete and utter drip who can't sort his life out. And, you know, it just I find the characters, you know, that, and also Colonel Brandon is really nice. And then he marries Marianne, who's really silly, and we're expected to believe that like this marriage is going to work out and be perfect for both of them. I just don't believe it. And it's just, yeah, I, it lacks the kind of emotional connection to the characters, I feel, because I'm just irritated by most of them. Um, or I like them a lot, and then I feel annoyed because at the end I don't feel they get what they deserve. Um, the one exception to this is Lucy Steele, who is like the most amazing um, villainess that Jane Austen mm, wrote, in mm. my opinion. Um She's so nasty. And even though I do think um, Isabella in Northland Gravy is brilliant as well, I think Lucy Steele is is a real um, tour de force of writing. But, yeah, it doesn't convince me. Don't love it. Pride and Prejudice, however, I think is pretty much about as perfect as a novel can get. And it's so funny. The characters are so realistic. You know, there's so many different characters with different perspectives on events. And you've got the silliness of the mother. And you've also got the, the relationship between the parents, which is kind of awkward. And then you've got the sisters. And, you know, it's just fantastic. You can't beat it. It's, and it's hilarious. Actually hilarious. Well, uh, noticeable moment for me there. I think, yeah. It is hilarious. And one thing that I do love about the silliness of Mrs. Bennet, which hadn't struck me until I'd known the story for a long time, until some, and some pointed out to me, is that she's completely right. Like, yeah, <laughs> like, she is really right. Yeah, and she, I love that about her. That she's Her daughters are going to have nothing when their father dies. She has to make sure they get married. And, and she yeah. successfully does it. She, gets, she snares two of the most eligible men in, in the south of England. Exactly. <laughs> she's not as stupid as she seems. No. Um... So, yes, I definitely love Pride and Prejudice. I also love Sense and Sensibility, and I completely agree with you that it's silly, and I think that's why I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's certainly, it seems to be closer to her juvenilia um, to me, and it's, it's yeah. quite heightened and quite... Um, people like Mr. and Mrs. Palmer, I don't think really exist, but I just love reading them. I think they're, um, they're bickering, and, and her sort of over-the-top hysteria and his grim face, like, I don't know, refusal to join in anything. Yeah. I, I just adore it. There's a bit, and I'm going to paraphrase horribly, where um, she's angry with him because he refuses to say that their child is, or someone's child, is the um, 
most beautiful boy in all of England or something. It's just it's, it's a level of understatement and sort of um, I don't know joking there that you don't really see. I don't think um, in her later novels. Mm. Uh, it's there in Northanger Abbey as well, but. Um, at the same time, if we're going on romantic pairings, um, I I really do cannot really uh, I can't stand the Marianne and Colonel Brandon partnering, and I think people forget because they've seen Alan Rickman play Colonel Brandon um, that he's he's a terrible compromise for Marianne, and she's a completely unsuitable wife for him. So she's she's got her heart set on this great romance, this great sort of wild and reckless romance with with Willoughby and. Um, Settles for the boring old man. <laughs> I, I feel it's. I think out out of most of her novels, I think yeah, I think I would say probably out most out of her novels, it's the most heavy-handed morally. If you see what I mean, it's like Marianne is really punished for what she's done. By more so than Mansfield Park. Yeah, even more so than Mansfield Park because you know, I mean, as much as I hate Fanny, which is something else for another day. <laughs> um, you know, she's her and. Edward are a perfectly matched couple. That's fine. You know, whatever. They can go off and be boring together for the rest of their lives. No one cares. But um, what about Mary Crawford? Who's, oh, I love Mary Crawford. I love her. Who's and punished I, for like whatever she sent off to, into exile with her aunt or something like no, that? No, 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 no. That's Maria. Oh, Maria. Okay. Mary doesn't get punished at all. In fact, I hope that she goes off and has a wonderful life afterwards because she deserves one for being so funny. Um, I know she's wicked and everything else, and I'm sure lots of people will say that I'm overlooking many parts of her character. But, you know, you can't beat a bad girl. I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, She's she's a candy woman. (laughs) In fact, I have, um, I think it's a truism of talking about Jonathan that she's more or less like Elizabeth Bennet. So you're sort of seeing her um, from another perspective. I mean, maybe Lizzie's not a bad girl, obviously, but um, the same, yeah, same strong mindedness, same spiritedness. Yeah. and and she's just, I mean, this is probably going to make me fall down on the side of Pride and Prejudice as well, but has there ever been a heroine in, in all of literature as wonderful as Elizabeth Bennet? I don't think so. I would struggle to think of one. I would struggle. I do love Emma, I have to say, um, mm, mm. but I know you don't. I do, no, I do love Emma. Oh, you do? Yeah. I love Emma, but she's but she's so different to Elizabeth I don't think you can really compare them which is when people always ask me what's your favourite Jane Austen I'm always like I have three ties in the first place and I literally can't choose between them because they're so different um, so it's your third one persuasion yes yeah which you don't love do you which I'm still really sad about I think you should reread it I definitely should so I, to fill people in I read all of them when I was 18 um, and I've read a couple I've read only, only read Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility since then um, so I really must read re- Reread and reassess. At the time, I found persuasion quite dull. Um, I, well, I mean, it was Jane Austen, so well, I think it was people brilliant, do but... when they when they're that age. Because mm. I banged on to my sixth formers last year about reading it, and a couple of them did. And one of them, who I thought would really love it, she was like, "Oh, I didn't love it very much." And everything else, I was like, "No, I can't believe you didn't love it." <laughs> so please reread it when you're older. And I think that's what it is. I think it is an older older person's novel, even though I'm not old. But you know, like yeah. I don't, it's, I don't think it's one to read when you're 18. Well, I intended to read it when I was 27, and thus the same age as Dried Up Spinster <laughs> and Elliot. <laughs> but, <laughs> now we're both past that. Now we're now. past that. Now we're basically, you know, just decrepit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's me. pretty on the shelf. <laughs> but no, Emma, I I love both character and book, and not as much as Claire from The Captive Reader, who loves Emma so, so much that it's incredibly charming to read. Basically, she will be best friends with anyone who likes Emma, <laughs> and I love that. Um 
I, I do think, again, the, the romantic pairing in Emma is sort of horrifying. I don't think Mr. Knightley and Emma are a good pairing. Um, sorry, Claire. But <laughs> I just, he, he's so I much... Love, no, I love Mr. Oh, I actually love him. He's so much older than her. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He, 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 he's basically a father figure for her, maybe a brother <laughs> figure. But you just forget that part. <laughs> I just don't see how it goes from him being like, I cradled you in my arms when you were a baby, <laughs> to <laughs> marry me much. <laughs> Sorry, a brief synopsis there. <laughs> Sorry for spoilers, guys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I'm but I mean, I tend to think that the romantic pairings in Jane Austen overall tend to be, in fact, I wrote about this in my finals as an undergraduate, they tend to be fraternal figures rather than romantic figures. And it, that may, that may be true across the board. I, I mean, I know there's supposed to be these great love stories, but I don't really, I yeah, don't really well, see I think, that. No, I know what you're saying. I wouldn't. I don't know if I'd say fraternal. I would probably say paternal in the sense that they tend to be in a guiding role and someone because the girls always need to be taught something. <laughs> I would say perhaps Elizabeth Bennet not so much, but I think certainly I'm just thinking of. Um, Catherine in Northanger Abbey, you know, Henry Tilney sorts her out, essentially. Um, you know, Marianne gets sorted out by Colonel Brandon. Um, not in the way she would <laughs> like, I'm sure, but, um, in normal ways. Um, so in the sense of like, you know, she's a child who needs to have this father to, to look after her. She's basically just married her dad, which is so depressing. Yes, she really um, has. And then, who else have we got? Let's think. Yeah, Fanny marries Edward, who's like always telling her what to do. Edmund, um, is it not? Edmund, Edward, Edmund. Yeah. <laughs> just, he's just dead to me, he's blank in my mind. He's not and the most thrilling character, is he? He's so boring, such a wet blanket. Um, who else, what am I missing, loads of novels? And no, uh, I don't know if Captain um, Wentworth is a paternal figure to Anne, I wouldn't say that he was, would you? No, that's no, that's probably the exception. They they um, they um seem more of an equal pairing, yeah. perhaps, than we see. I just love the station so much, I just, I just get teary teary just thinking about if you, it if you need a moment Trace, I, I can i can monologue for a bit about that letter and it's just so beautiful. oh i mean maybe now i'd find that touching rather than just annoying <laughs> it's beautiful it's the most beautiful thing i've ever read <laughs> oh i just love it i'm just having a moment here on my own it's beautiful okay so carry on i'm fine i'm recovered uh let's talk about other great characters in in the books and discussion um Obviously, Lady Catherine de Bourgh is a wonder. Amazing. Um, that scene where she comes to visit Elizabeth, I, it is my favourite scene, I think, in all of literature. <laughs> uh, where, um, oh, the retorts that Elizabeth gives, um, only this, that if he is, you should have no reason to believe he could be engaged to me, etc., etc. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, it's just so well written. So, so well written, and it's really um, tautly structured, that scene, and done so brilliantly in what is obviously the best TV adaptation of, of any book ever. Yes. Jennifer yeah. Edie and Colin Firth, 1995, Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> that is brilliant. I'll tell you who else I love. Um, Mr. Collins. Yes, bless him. You can't beat Mr. Collins. Absolutely hilarious. I love that he plans his his compliments in advance. Yes, I love that when he writes <laughs> about Lydia and says, the death of your sister would have been a blessing in comparison. <laughs> well, thank you for that sensitive yeah. response. Um, <laughs> Lydia's great as well. Like I know she's awful, but that she's just that irrepressible irresponsibility of, of a teenager is so well written. 
just where she's completely oblivious to the rest of the world and the impact of her actions on anyone else. It's like, this is what I'm doing and I'm happy so everyone else can just go away. Yeah. So, <laughs> it, you know, that's great. And um, and the Wickham twist, although obviously we yes. all know it now, really cleverly done, very shocking if you're reading it for the first time. I don't who knew? <laughs> I know. Spoilers again. <laughs> if you're, if you're, everyone must have read it by now, surely. I assume. I'm just going to assume that everyone here knows everything that happened to all of Jane Austen. Yeah. Sorry, everyone. Um, <laughs> what else? Sense and Sensibility. I do think, actually, I do enjoy reading, the, which sounds absurd, but the, the brother and his wife at the beginning, that argument they have yes, for how yes. much money to give, I think that's very cleverly done. It's like, well, you know, they practically don't, they, you know, they'd be offended if you gave them yes. money. It's like, no, they wouldn't. But it's that's really well written, and that sense of greed and selfishness is really well portrayed. Um, but I can't think of any other sort of periphery characters and sense of sensibility that I like. The mum is quite nice, isn't she, Mrs. Dashwood? Yeah, she's sort of steel. practical and sensible and all that. Yeah. Um, Yes, I think Mr. and Mrs. Palmer are my standouts in that, and they don't get to do as much as they're like, oh, and that, what's her name? Mrs. Jennings, she's yes, great. She's, she's a delight. But Lucy, uh, Lucy Steele is, is the best character in the book, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> for being, coming to life, you know? She has some great dialogue. She yeah. Really does. Um, the, the saddest character, in terms of the fact that she just disappears, um, is, of course, Margaret. Yes, what does happen to Margaret? <laughs> It's never mentioned again. Yeah. Uh, did she forget about her? Did she read <laughs> her out? I don't know. <laughs> Need some editing there. Yeah. Sorry, Jane. Well, you know, you didn't get it right all the time, did you? <laughs> Say. Yeah, sacrilege, but a bit possibly true. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that maybe I loved Sense Sensibility so much because it is a younger person's book. Maybe that is the one that is an 18-year-old is most likely to love. Yeah, I um, remember really enjoying it when I was young, and then when I when I was young, as if I <laughs> um, but when I reread it a few years ago, I was like, oh, this is such a lot of nonsense. Um, so really not nonsense. I mean, it's still a great book, but I just read it and thought, oh, for goodness sake! Like you know, when you're just thinking, oh, really? Oh, really? This is <laughs> every five minutes, and I got to the end and I thought, no, she can't marry him. He wears flannel vests. For goodness sake! <laughs> you can't do that to someone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Whereas people end up with the right people in Pride and Prejudice. That's exactly. what I mean. Oh my gosh, Bingley and Jane. Oh. I, I wish I were Bingley. He's my life. I, I mean, I'm so what? far you, away from you him. You are him. I was going to say that. You are him. <laughs> oh. You're so nice. Like, that's Bless you a thousand times, Rachel. But I wish I were. I wish I had his, um, what's the opposite of cynicism? <laughs> I can't even think of the word. <laughs> That's how far I am from it. Good, his, his, until I have his goodness, I can never have his happiness, to, to paraphrase Lizzie. <laughs> uh, um, yes, there's a lot of people to, to cheer on, as we well as people make, to just love it. It's a rich tapestry of life. And that's what I love about it. My brother does refer to characters in other novels as kitty characters if he thinks they could have been left out by the author. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. And Mary oh, as well. Did we need her? Oh, poor Mary. Um, oh, if she'd end up with Mr. Collins. This is such a scholarly discussion, isn't it? Pairing people up with <laughs> <laughs> um, And it does remind me, actually, of another thing I read, that um, the film annotations of Austen novels tend to be about romance and the books tend to be about self-knowledge. And I think that's yeah. a good observation. 
That is, that's a very good observation. And I think a lot of the time, actually, people's perceptions of Jane Austen have been so manipulated by what they've watched. And I know a lot of people who will say, oh, yeah, 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 I've, I've read Pride and Prejudice. And then when you probe pri- closer, you find out they've, they've just watched the TV adaptation. <laughs> um, so I think if you think about them in terms of romances only, then you are missing so much of the subtlety and the commentary on social life and also on what it is to be a woman, what it is to grow up, what it is to um, kind of find your own path in life. There's so much going on beneath the surface. I think Pride and Prejudice is really the culmination of her ability of drawing all of those strands together and presenting a novel that is really rich and meaty and has lots of different messages that you can enjoy. It's not just, oh, they all live happily after, you know, there's lots to think about. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas Sense and Sensibility, I don't think so much. That's fair. I think, and I think the thing that I think I most admire in Pride and Prejudice is how brilliantly plotted it is, and and the sort of pacing of the novel, yeah. and how all the strands tie up, um, and even, even things like when the first proposal comes, and how that Ooh. triggers off other things. I love it. Yeah. Oh, and and I think the more that you reread or, or think about those scenes the more you realize it is complex it's not darcy's bad and becomes good it's it's no and actually he does realize very very quickly within like a chapter actually that he's made a mistake and mm. it's adorable how he tries to show that he's made a mistake and lizzie's like no i won't have any of it and i just think oh he's yes. so cute. <laughs> he's like so hard to show you that he's sorry and it's just it's just lovely and i think again that's something you forget if you've only watched the tv adaptation mm. you have because colin first plays him as being you know so um meant emotionally incompetent um at the beginning it's you feel like oh it doesn't happen until the the engage, engagement mm. comes as a bit of a surprise like the, his proposal but actually when you read the book his regrets and his attraction to her are very obvious from r- right at the beginning actually um and i think also to modern audiences his his first proposal is just rude whereas at the time what he's saying is largely true yeah <laughs> the way the mode of his declaration of course is not particularly well handled but um and i i think the fact that he is rude and that lizzie is very eloquent in her dismissal of him um leads us to think that she's right and he's wrong whereas in fact what yeah he is marrying beneath him in the standards, standards of the day of course or, or proposing beneath him her family have shown her up it, it, it yeah all these things he is making a huge romantic gesture in some ways of saying i don't care about them i still want to marry you yeah. Um, I think it shows respect for her actually the fact that he's honest with her about it mm, mm. Um, so many novels of the time they give all these overblown gestures and then immediately once the ring was on the finger they'd <laughs> ignore them completely <laughs> yeah if you think of Fanny Burney's uh, yeah, proposals in those in the sort of overblown rhetoric of the day whereas oh, I skipped yeah. all those lectures Simon <laughs> I couldn't cope with any more after you know Tom Jones did me in <laughs> oh well I never got as far as Tom Jones <laughs> by the way I should just say if you can hear the piano being played in the background it's not because I've decided to soundtrack this to <laughs> to Jane Austen um, but because we now my house now has a piano and someone might be playing it <laughs> <laughs> Rachel and I were discussing this the other day. We found a piano outside someone's house and um, asked if we could have it, and they said yes. But apparently, sound sound carries. If you can't hear it, this has been a completely unnecessary tangent. 
uh, which, in fact, that always reminds me of uh, in the um, sorry, I was always reminded of the BBC adaptation by the song "Sheep's May Safely Graze," which Mary sings horrendously, and which yes. we also had in a piano book growing up. So, <laughs> I used to play that and try and sing it as badly as as Mary did. <laughs> um, in fact, while I was on the topic of adaptations. Should we speak of the 2005 Pride and Prejudice? Will that I would rather not, Anthony. <laughs> I would rather not. Um, do you know what? I mean, I I have a sort of a rational dislike of, of Kira Knightley, um, but I will admit <laughs> that she's actually a very good Lizzie. Well, my problem with it was that she she has said that she's also a huge fan of Jennifer Ely's performance, and you could hear it in her voice. So often she does copies exactly the same intonations that Lizzie did, uh, so that Jennifer Ely did. Oh, I um, noticed that. And I, yeah, I find it very offering. I mean, she was nominated for an Oscar for the for her film, so I guess yeah, not everyone thought it was bad. <laughs> I but, don't. I didn't like Matthew McFadden as um, as Darcy. Though he's played him far too sulkily. Oh yeah, absolutely. He played he was him like a petulant yeah. child. I was like, what are you doing? If it's always sort of like Heathcliff light. I don't know. It was like this it's is like, just silly now. And why is the proposal in the rain? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just dry your hair and sit inside. <laughs> <laughs> Um, whereas Sense Sensibility hasn't had an adaptation since 1990, whenever it was. There was a TV adaptation, but... Uh, oh, there was, wasn't there? Yes, Andrew Thingy. Was it Andrew Davis who yes, did that one? Yes, did one. I mean, I, I don't remember loving it. But then I don't love the book, so, you know. Not true. <laughs> but, no, I, I do think... I mean, I do, you can't go wrong with Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet and Alan Rickman. I mean, come on. <laughs> Thank I mean, you I do much. enjoy the film, because I love all those actors so much, but it's not... You know, it's not something I would choose to sit and watch like I'd choose to watch the Pride and Prejudice TV adaptation. Those six hours just fly by. Oh, and I also, I can't remember if you do or not, I also love Lost in Austin. Did you I've watch never, that? I've never seen it. People keep oh. saying to me, oh, you should watch it. I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll have to see if it's on Netflix. I think it might be. Um, it's so, for those for those not in the um, 21st century gal, Amanda um, <laughs> has <laughs> accidentally swapped places with... Um, Elizabeth Bennet at the beginning of the novel. Um, we don't see much of Lizzie after that until the final episode, but before that, you have the she. Um, she's a huge Jane Austen fan, and she's trying to keep the novel on track whilst at the same time unwittingly affecting the events therein. It's very cleverly done, um, and in fact, even the amazing 1995 uh, um, adaptation included. I think that Hugh Bonville might be the best Mr. Bennet I've seen, and he is Mr. Bennet in Austen Austen. Oh, really? Yeah. I love Hugh Bonnefell. He is brilliant. And they don't use any lines from the novel. Um, I don't know if that was... I'm not quite sure why they said to do that, because obviously it's out of copyright. But um, So, yes, they have to make up all their own, and they make up characteristic Mr. Bennett lines brilliantly. Okay, well, I'm going to check this out. Yes, I, I force it on lots of people, and occasionally people love it, and more often than not, they don't. But I really hope you do. <laughs> okay. I think it shows a great affection towards Pride and Prejudice and a great knowledge of it. Um, even if things go bizarrely awry afterwards. <laughs> okay, well, you know, I will watch it and feedback. Please, please do. Please, and anyone else who has thoughts on Austin Austin, let us know. Yeah. Or indeed, any of the topics we discussed today. <laughs> Just Lost in Austin, nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to know your favourite rural novels, only what you think of a short-lived miniseries from about seven years ago. <laughs> oh, dear. So... Yes, our TL Books decision on Prime Regis vs. Sensibility does seem to be, again, in agreement. Wow, sure. Prime Regis. Yes, we've been 
I mean, I, I do like Sentence Fifty more than you do, but I still, I still have to pick Pride and Prejudice. It's just, as you say, the perfect book, basically. Yes, it is. Right. So we're back. We did it. We remembered how to podcast. Yes, <laughs> we will be back again shortly. We will not be disappearing again. Have mm-hmm. we decided what we're talking about next time? Oh no, of course not. No, of course <laughs> we will just make it up all again next time. Like every time. <laughs> yes, any only suggestions for topics. Oh, yeah. like lovely Darlene did. Do let us know. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for listening.